are doing in, in Matthew 16 through 20, these, these hard sayings of uh, Jesus. And uh, this one is probably a really big one. Uh, this one has all kinds uh, of controversy that surrounds it. In fact, if I didn't have to do 20 minutes of the controversy, this would be a 10 minute sermon, as you're going to see when I clear through all that and get down to what the point of all of this really is. But uh, I, I feel like if I were to do that, if I just went to right at the heart of the text, there'd be a lot of people like, well, wait a minute, but what about and what about and what about? Uh, so I feel like I have to do that. Let me, uh, but let me say this to start. I am pretty sure that what I'm going to tell you is going to jar you. So I'm, I'm confident in that. So uh, as we go through this, please do not eject and hit the escape button uh, as we go through. Uh, that I really encourage you to listen to this all the way through. And uh, I look forward to all of your questions afterward. But uh, uh, this is one that you have two different sides about this, and I don't think either of them are right. So that's why this is going to be fun. All right, so here we go. Uh, uh, Matthew chapter 16 and uh, verse 13. Uh, we, we have an, an important picture that is... Uh, given to us. Now, you might remember back in the prior section, uh, we have the warning of the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. They have come to Jesus asking for a sign. Jesus is, tells them, you know, I, I've done plenty of signs for you. I'm not going to give you a sign uh, except the sign of Jonah. The resurrection was going to be uh, this important sign uh, that God was going to ultimately fulfill through him. But I want you to notice that that Jesus has a, a very interesting discussion now with his disciples. In verse thir- 13, he asks, who do people say that the son of man is? And I want you to think about the answers that are given. Because it, it ought to be notable to us that the disciples don't say, you know, everybody says you're the Messiah. They all don't go, hey, yeah, they all think you're the Christ, you're the son of God. They're, they're all in on you. They, they know exactly what's, what, what's, what's, what's going on. And uh, I think that's, that's interesting that the answers that they give. Um, some say that you're John the Baptist. Now, you might remember Herod had said that earlier. Back in chapter 14 and verse 2, Herod thought that Jesus was John the Baptist raised from the dead. And that's why uh, he was able to do miracles. So some are saying that you're John. And some of you are saying that he is Elijah. And that would make sense. Over in, in Malachi chapter 4 and verse 5, Malachi prophesied that Elijah would come before the great and awesome day of the Lord. And keep in mind, sometimes we think in the scriptures like everybody was doing miracles, but when you think, read through the Hebrew scriptures, that's not true. Uh, there was very few people who were doing miracles. Elijah's one of them. And so you can imagine why it would be a logical connection that Jesus would be connected to Elijah, that he's doing miracles just like Elijah did. Some were saying that he's Jeremiah. I find that one fascinating. That there's no prophecy about a, a return of Jeremiah like there is of Isaiah, of, uh, excuse me, of Elijah. But it might tell you a little bit about what Jesus was saying. Jeremiah was a prophet of doom. 
Uh, he was a prophet of destruction of Jerusalem, destruction of temple, a, a calling out of the people's sins, uh, a calling out to repentance. And you could imagine that maybe some people are making that connection because they're like, well, Jesus is a prophet of doom. He's proclaiming judgments on the nation as well. And then finally, some will say that he's a prophet. Remember the two on the road to Emmaus in Luke chapter 24. Uh, they say that uh, Jesus was a prophet. The Samaritan woman at the well, I have found a prophet. Come and see. The blind man in John 9 says that Jesus is a prophet. So I want you to get a sense that there's a lot of opinions about Jesus. And a pretty wide variety that they all don't say, well, they all think you're the Christ. Nor do they all say, well, you, they all think this one particular thing. It's kind of all over the board. Uh, Elijah, Jeremiah, John the Baptist, the prophet. But I want you to consider that Jesus is not asking this question like a popularity poll. Hey, how do you think I'm doing out there? Does it seem like I'm getting good ratings? What do people say that I am? You'll, you'll notice the, the point in verse 15. Then he turns and says to them, but who do you say that I am? Now, our English kind of covers us over. That's an important point to make right here. We don't have a plural you in English. And it's a plural word here in Greek. In fact, the New American Standard update tries to capture that. Who do you yourselves say that I am? Or in our lingo, who do you all say that I am? It is a plural you that is here. And if we had the old English, the King James says, who do ye say that I am? Because that's the plural you uh, in classical English. Very important to get a sense of the question here. Jesus is asking all of his disciples right here. This is what everybody else says. But who do you all, my group here, who do you say that I am? Now, I want you to notice in this question to all of the disciples that you have Peter jumping in in verse 16. Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Now, I have a, a question for you with this. Do you think only Peter believed this? Or do you think Peter answers this on behalf of the 12? He asked all of them, who do you all say that I am? And I don't think Peter's like, I know these other 11 don't believe in you, but I believe that you're the Christ, the son of the living God. I believe it is pretty evident that he's answering on behalf of the disciples. He's representing the whole. It's not like Peter says, you're the Christ. And Thomas goes, yeah, I don't think that. They start having an argument over that. They, they all believe that. They all are aware of that. that that's why they're the, 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 the close 12. That's why they're with him. And, and Peter is answering together in, in that way. I believe that you're the Christ. You're the son of, of, the living, of the living God. Now, I want you to notice what that transitions into in verse 17. In verse 17, it says, Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my father who is in heaven. Now, 
I want us to think about what Jesus says here in this moment as well. If we're careful about this whole back and forth, I think this opens up a lot about what is going on in what Jesus is ultimately going to teach. All right. So blessed are you, Peter, Simon, son, son of, of, of Jonah. And that is a, a you, you, not a you all. That's a you, you. That's a singular you. Blessed are you, Peter. Flesh and blood has not revealed this to you. But my father who's in heaven, what does Jesus mean by that? What is he trying to get at? Is Jesus saying at the moment that I asked that question, God directly implanted into your mind the right answer that I am the son of God, the son of the living God. And that's why we could say flesh and blood didn't give you that answer. But my father who is in heaven. I don't think that's the point because that defeats the whole purpose of the question. The question is to ask his disciples, do you understand who I am? Do you really know who I am? To, to, to then turn around and say, well, God force fed you that answer. And, you know, that, that's why you passed. I don't think that's what he means. Uh, the, the idea of saying flesh and blood did not reveal this to you is communicating This is not something that you would have understood by observation, which is what all of chapter 16 is pointing to. Chapter 16 begins, Pharisees and Sadducees have seen signs. Do they think that Jesus is the Messiah, the son of the living God? No. He asked the question, what do people say that I am? And do all the people say, well, by observation and seeing all the things that you do, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. No. They say, he's John, he's Elijah, he's Jeremiah, he's a prophet. What he is observing here is that their knowledge isn't what came through natural observation. But the reason that they know this is because of their knowledge of God. I don't have time, nor the voice, but... In John 6, that's the very point that Jesus is making when the Pharisees are upset and grumbling about, about who Jesus is. And Jesus says, you know, well, don't, don't, don't grumble. No one can come to me unless the Father draws them and you will all be taught of God. What's, what's Jesus saying? Well, the people who know God, they're the ones that are going to know me. Your relationship and understanding God is the reason why you understand who I am. And that's what he means here in this moment. He says, flesh and blood did not reveal this to you. This is not something by mere observation because there are all kinds of people who are seeing the miracles and hearing the teachings. They are not saying he's the Christ. In fact, you're going to have many who are going to reject him and kill him. But these 12 have an awareness. These 12 have a, have an understanding and I've made this point a few times about the disciples that I I think far too often people enjoy criticizing the disciples. Oh, there's those disciples who don't know anything. You know, when will they ever figure it out? There are many times where they have it figured out and other people don't. And, And this is one of those scenes. Nobody else is proclaiming him to be the son of God. But Peter goes, we know who you are. I know that you're the Christ. I know you're the son of the living God. They have a a spiritual awareness. 
that other people don't don't have. And so I think there's an important setup to now what is going to happen here. Verse 18. I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. All right, so this is the battleground. This is the controversy. This is the text where everybody has to try to figure this out. When Jesus says this, did Jesus say that he would build his church on Peter or on the confession that Peter proclaimed? That's the whole big to do, volumes, arguments, churches, everything is all over trying to deal with this particular answer. Now, what I want to do for this moment is show why both are problematic. If you say that this is built on Peter, obviously there is nothing here in this text that establishes Peter as future singular Pope leader through which a line of succession then flows. I mean, that doesn't say that in verse 20. That there is no no text here that says, uh, and through you, Peter, will now be all future lines of high priest who will stand before God and make decisions. It doesn't say that. To read that to say, okay, you're Peter, and that means line of succession, is to read it into the text. That's just not there. I would like to also point out to the other side, though, arguing that the rock is the confession doesn't get you out of the problem. Because verse 19 is the problem. Verse 19 says, I will give you, who is you? A singular you, Peter. I will give you, Peter, the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. So even if you want to make the argument and say, well, the confession of the rock is not Peter, it is on that confession that doesn't solve verse 19. Because verse 19 puts it on Peter directly and says, you have the keys to the kingdom of heaven and what you bind will be bound in heaven and what you loose will be loosed in heaven as as well. So point being, you're not out of the woods either way you go in trying trying to deal with this. Also, the Greek doesn't get you out of the woods. If you've grown up in the pews, you've probably heard this one. Well, Peter's name is a Greek different word than than rock, and I don't have time for that today, nor the voice for it. I have done other lessons on this. I, you could go to the website, and I have done all the Greek stuff on why that's incorrect. I will just give you the very quick answer to that, is that Greek is a gender language like Spanish is, which is like objects are either in feminine or masculine. So just because rock is feminine, Petra, doesn't mean anything, because that's how you had to say it. So the distinction doesn't doesn't do anything, that's a fallacy uh, that most scholars point out, but unfortunately is still perpetuated uh, in in a lot of teachings. So that doesn't help you at all either. So hopefully you're good and confused so that we can now settle all of this and, and deal with this. I want you to think about what Jesus tells Peter here, particularly in verse 19. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. I want you to think about what that symbolizes. 
If I were to give you the keys to my house, what would I be doing for you? What would, what would that mean? There's an idea of authority, right? Now you have charge. I'm going to go on vacation for a week, and here are my keys. And if you have my keys, then you can, you know, check the mail and make sure the fish is still alive and, you know, make sure nothing's awry inside and all of that. The giving of keys is a picture of giving authority. Now, I want to clarify something that I think is important about the idea of keys. If I give you the keys to my house while I'm gone for a while, does that mean you own the house? No, I'm not going to be happy if I come back in a week and you're like, yeah, look at what we did. We painted. We, you know, we tore down some walls and, you know, we just kind of tore up the place. Like, no, 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 no. The sense of what Jesus is doing right here is that idea. This is his kingdom. I will build my church and, and, and the gates of Hades are not going to prevail against it. But while Jesus is going to be away, we don't have time, but the next paragraph is going to be him foretelling his death. While I'm away, you have authority. I'm giving you the keys. You're going to be in charge while I'm gone. That doesn't mean it it, makes it Peter's. He doesn't get to do whatever he wants to do. He doesn't get to, you know, unilaterally. No. Christ. But he has authority. And I want you to think about how this is found all throughout the New Testament. Peter regularly stands as a picture of a leader of the apostles and is frequently pictured as a representative for the apostles. For example, in the New Testament, Peter's name is always first. Always. Always. In any listing, his name's always first. It's never like Andrew, James, John, oh, and by the way, Peter. It is always Peter, everybody else. Peter's name always is listed first. In the book of Acts, here's just a small sampling of how many times Peter speaks on behalf of the apostles. It always says, and Peter stood up with the apostles and said, or Peter and John, and they said, Peter is always pictured as in the lead. He is always pictured as speaking on behalf of the apostles. And by the way, in the book of Acts, he's also pictured in speaking about judgment in the scene with Ananias and Sapphira in Acts chapter five. Who is the one who confronts that and pronounces judgment? Peter. In Acts chapter eight, Simon the sorcerer who tries to buy the the gift of the Holy Spirit. Who's the one that confronts it and condemns it? Peter. Peter is shown as the one who is even authorized in bringing this judgment for the sins that are being committed. And don't forget in Acts 1, he's the one that says, hey, we need to get a replacement for Judas. It is fascinating how the book of Acts puts forward Peter as representing the apostles, name comes first, binding in judgment, speaking on behalf of the apostles. All right, drink break, hold on. Think about this statement as well as, as Matthew sixteen nineteen. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Note Peter's kingdom authority in the book of Acts. In Acts chapter 2, when we have the Holy Spirit poured out, Peter with the 11 stand up. 
And you'll notice, remember, that he, they are the ones that are proclaiming entrance into the kingdom of Christ is available to the Jews, right? Peter is the one preaching this sermon. We even call it Peter's first sermon. Peter's the one who proclaims this sermon to the masses that Jews can have forgiveness and enter the kingdom of God. By the way, who's the one that does it to the Gentiles? Peter again. Peter in Acts chapter 10 is proclaiming to Cornelius and his household and saying, hey, you also can enter the kingdom of heaven. And remember, you even have disciples in chapter 11 coming against him and he preaches to them and says, no, no, this is the will of God that Gentiles can enter in. So over and over again, I want us to get the sense that Peter is pictured as representing the apostles. He is described as a leader of the apostles. Name comes first. And all of his proclaiming. And we even touched on this in Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 19 in the Bible class. You're no longer strangers or aliens, but fellow citizens of the saints and members of the household of God. Built on the foundation of the apostles. Now notice it doesn't say Peter. Peter represents the apostles. Built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself, the cornerstone. Same thing in Revelation 21. And on the walls of the city had 12 foundations, and on those walls were Peter's name. No, the apostles. Again, represents the apostles. This picture of Peter and the apostles were the foundation of this proclamation that was going to be going out for the kingdom of of heaven as Jesus is giving it to him. Now, all right, does this make Peter the first pope? If we turn around and go, okay, he's talking about Peter and the apostles here. So does that automatically make that? I will state again, no, that's not what the text says. Where are you going to go to show Peter's supremacy over all of the other apostles, having unilateral authority to say and do whatever he wants, or that there's a line of succession that would come from him. That is not anywhere in the scriptures. You have to put that in there. There's a lot of different ways to to argue against that. Don't have time, don't have the voice. But let me just give you one. I think Acts 15 is a very good example. In Acts 15, there is a critical debate that unfolds about Gentiles' entrance into the kingdom. Do they need to be circumcised? Do they need to keep the works of the law? Acts 15 says there was a great debate about that. A couple of things to think about. If Peter's the first pope with unilateral authority, why is there even a great debate? Peter could just walk in and go, well, you know who I am, guys. Problem solved. That's not what happens. If that's what this means here in Matthew 16, that he just is the one in charge, then why is there even a debate at all? And if that's what this means here, why is there even a discussion after Peter speaks? Because remember, after Peter speaks, what happens? Paul and Barnabas, they talk. And then James, the brother of Jesus, he talks. He is not being elevated higher than anybody else. Otherwise, Acts 15 doesn't make sense. So seeing what is going on here in Acts 16 does not make Peter numero uno, 
Say whatever you want to do. He's in charge. Lineage is going to come out of him. That's not what this is saying. Here's what this is saying. It's Christ's kingdom. And Jesus is telling the Peter and the apostles. They're going to have the authority to continue his work on earth. That took 20 minutes. Not even the point of the text. But this is a paragraph that's so messed up. He is telling Peter and the apostles, I'm giving you authority. And when I'm gone, you're going to run with that authority through the proclaiming of the word of God. They're going to be the foundation of the kingdom through whom they would preach and the Jews would come in and through whom they would preach and the Gentiles would come in. They are described in Ephesians 2 as the foundation. Christ Jesus, the cornerstone. All right. Not even the point. Let's do the point. Told you this would have been a really short sermon if we didn't have to do all the mess, all the mess behind. Let's get back to what this was the real big deal, because what Jesus says here is is absolutely glorious. And I want you to to hear what he says. Verse 18 Matthew 16, verse 18, I tell you, you are Peter and on this rock, I will build my church and the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. I honestly have no idea why the ESV kept hell there. There's a footnote that says that's not what that is. You're looking at a little footnote, Hades, almost all the other translations read Hades. Very important statement that's being made here. Here's Jesus. I'm going to build my church. All he's saying is, I am going to build my assembly of saved people. I have come to gather those who will listen to me. I have come to gather those who who will belong to me. I am going to build my group of saved people. And how is he going to accomplish that? Through the proclamation of the apostles and prophets. Through the teaching of what they would give, not only when they live, but what they would write write down as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. But notice what Jesus said next. The gates of Hades. Hades is a symbol of death. The grave. Death. The gates of Hades will not overpower or overcome. Jesus saved people. That's the message. Peter, I have come and I have the authority over death, over the grave, over sin. And I am giving to you the keys of the kingdom and death cannot overcome the people who will come into this assembly, into this kingdom, into this church. There is no power that death holds over them. You have to love this picture. This is an image of the people of God, the kingdom of God as never being extinguished. They are death defying. You can kill them physically and they still belong to God. They can die and they're still with him. The gates of Hades will not overcome them. 
It doesn't matter what happens to us in this physical life that doesn't change your spiritual reality. By the way, Jesus said that in Revelation. There's Jesus' words. Don't be afraid. I am the first and the last, the living one. I was dead. But look, I am alive forever and ever. And notice the image. And I hold the keys of death and Hades. I have authority over death. I have authority over the grave. And that authority would then reach beyond him to all who would come to Christ and belong to his kingdom. The gates of death cannot overpower the kingdom of Christ. If you belong to Christ, there is no fear of death. I think arguably, if humans were as raw, honest as we could possibly be, Our greatest fear is the moment of death. If you've talked to anybody, Christian or not, who's approached those final minutes, the deepest fear is, I don't know what's going to happen next. And we all feel that way. We don't know what that looks like. But we are given a picture of one who's done this before. Jesus comes along and says, I've gone through that. I died, was dead. But look, I'm alive. And notice his point is not, good luck to you. No, the rest of it is, I've got the keys. I've got the authority. I've got charge over it. And when you come to Christ, listening to what the apostles proclaimed as the good news of following him, serving him and obeying him, there is this key thing. You don't have to fear death. Or to put it another way, death does not have power over you. For you know you belong with him. And you belong to his kingdom. And I'll simply end the lesson by asking what Jesus asked in the very beginning. Because how you answer this question is everything. How you answer this question is the only way to either have hope or remain in fear. Who do you say that I am? And if we say, Jesus is the Christ. He's the son of the living God. And we are going to give our allegiance to him. And we will give our lives to him. 
And we will give our very being to Him. Jesus is giving a promise. The gates of death have no power over those who belong to that kingdom. There is no fear. Instead, there is simply hope because of what God has accomplished through His Son. But if that is not our belief, if we do not believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, but like many of these people, He's, he's a prophet, people in our day, He's a good guy, was really good some of the stuff he said. That hope's not there. There is a call here by Jesus that if you will believe in who I am, and if you will truly give your life to me, there is no reason for fear. But instead there is hope. Because through Christ he has conquered death, he has conquered Satan, and he has conquered all that would stand in our way from enjoying eternity with him. Let's go to God in prayer this morning. Heavenly Father, it is a wonderful hope that you came and made it possible for us to not only be forgiven. To not only be your servants, but that you would make us your children. And that we could belong to this household that you have made for us. We belong to this kingdom that you have established. And that you have made it possible for us to have no reason to fear. What would happen after this fleshly body is set aside? Lord, thank you for revealing this wonderful hope that we have through your son. And Lord, thank you for sending out your apostles that proclaim the good news of the kingdom to the ends of the earth. And Lord, we thank you that you had them inspired, carried by the Holy Spirit and wrote those things down so that we even today can read what they wrote and be able to come into this glorious kingdom. Lord, thank you for conquering death, conquering sin, conquering every obstacle that stood against us so that we could belong into an eternal kingdom that cannot be shaken. And Lord, I pray that you would forgive us for when we live our lives for simply the physical. Forgive us for when we make decisions out of fear of our own bodies rather than a desire and love to serve you. And Lord, may we be able to be like the Apostle Paul who would sacrifice our life to lay it all down. Because we know if we depart the body, we will be with you for eternity. Thank you for our glorious hope. In Jesus' name, amen.